Um, I mean, that that is one of the more interesting things about Rumsfeld is the fact is the whole like note capturing thing, you know, like he that I, did you guys see the Errol Morris documentary ever? No, I haven't. Oh, you really should. Have you, Matt? I never heard of it. But before I came over, I read Peggy Noonan had a I remember reading it years ago, a review of Rumsfeld's book, and she tears into it. And one of the things she hates is the memo keeping where she says you can't really trust him because everybody knows now that memos are going to inform future historians. So people just jot them down hoping that like they'll be proven right one day and that's not necessarily a reflection of what they were thinking at the time well what really struck me about it uh and you see it in the in the documentary is um that he asks him about it and he said like as a congressman early on he just got into this habit of just he had a dictaphone always has a dictaphone with him and he's constantly dictating his thoughts into them and he says he would get them and then get them transcribed and then edit them edit them and go through several sort of phases of this and then share it with staff that this was his his mode i mean it might be that he always had this vision of being a great man was sort of preparing for that somehow but the uh the really wild thing about it is is uh he claims it helps crystallize his thinking and what's really wild is the way he talks to uh errol morris in the documentary uh, it's it's actually quite verbatim to some of the memos that he's done later. And you can see that kind of like his entire worldview has crystallized because of this process of constantly dictating his thoughts, constantly refining them. So I don't know, maybe it's it's a little speculative to say that, that you know, his self-certainty is somehow uh, tied to the fact that he has this habit of like jotting everything down and like getting his thoughts crystallized. That, but it, it occurred to me during the movie that that's part of what's going that's on. That's really interesting. And I wouldn't trust anyone who dictated notes or whatever. I mean, that, that is suspicious. I think, I mean, um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, it also occurred to me, it's one of those like habits of insanely, insanely successful people, right. Or like su- successful writers, someone who has like a very clear style and really knows one's argument really well it's just practice and practice thinking practice writing it down but i i wonder if there's a downside to it that it also makes you less flexible because you just sort of fall into your own echo chamber constantly and you're just you know refining your arguments without any pushback i mean i like um i like working out my arguments in written form i'm not a big uh, so for example i don't know if you guys know this but some youngsters a generation um the one after me <laughs> what are you uh, I guess I'm an, a geriatric millennial. Okay. That's what they're calling us old millennials now. Yeah. So apparently these youngsters, what they do, and um, sometimes I'm on the receiving end of this for better or worse, I'll get a, um, what is it, a voice mem- a voice message. So instead of texting me or, um, or what, I guess what's the other? Calling? Well, calling, I don't like. I really don't like it when people call me just for, I mean, I talk to my parents on the phone and my brother on the phone. Otherwise, don't call me unless there's a, an emergency, unless you're like dying on the street or someone is, I don't know. Anyone dying on the street, call shoddy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they send, they um, they record themselves. Sometimes they're, you know, maybe they're driving or for whatever reason, they don't feel like texting. They'll record their own voice and then I'll I'll listen to them speaking. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, like a voice memo is what you said. <laughs> I mean, most people do voice to text, I feel like. Um, they oh. talk and then that transcribes it into text and then you get that. And then every now and then you'll get a follow-up text saying, hey, my bad. Because it, it'll end with like, I don't know, my boss does this all the time. Or I'll get a message from him and it's a voice to text. And then the final three words are like, no, put that down. And then they will say, sorry, I was talking to my two-year-old or something. And then oh, that also okay. got added huh. to the text. Yeah. 
Wait, but so, but anyway, it, I don't know. It, I, what does this have? So to to bring this back to Rumsfeld, yeah, I think people who um who like to reassemble words when they're writing, and that's so. Sometimes I'll be doing that. I'm working on, um, you know, an article and revising it, and that's how I, I think more in terms of words on a page. I'm not someone who would be comfortable dictating, and I. And I would be very, I think, self-conscious if I had to send a voice memo to someone because I'd, I'd feel like I'm recording it. I have to get it exactly right. And I won't necessarily have another chance or I wouldn't want to waste time recording over and over, right? Where I think with writing, the process is more seamless and natural and it works better with how my my own mind works. You you spread you fret that much on texts? Like if you're sending a text to someone? No, no, when I'm when I'm when you're using writing. my voice. No, I get it, but like if you're you would would you do what Matt was saying earlier, just like dictate texts to people? Do you do that text to speech? Is this what the kids are doing these days? I don't know. I've never done it. Uh I think Well, anyway, people, the yeah. bigger point here, <laughs> the bigger point here is that Rumsfeld was someone who as I found out as I've been reading more about him in preparation for this podcast episode and by and by in preparation i mostly mean i read two short articles about rumsfeld that's the extent of what Which i'm talking mine? about well yours was a little bit longer it was 1450 words true and the George Packer one, which I read very quickly before I came here, was about 600 words. So, yeah, I was surprised Packer was so short, quite frankly. Yeah, and I think it worked quite well. But this is all to say I read a total of 2,000 words about Rumsfeld in preparation for this. So I'm really on my game tonight. I yeah. am ready to dive into this man's history. Um, but what I, I did find out, and I would highly recommend— um, Demir Demir's Friday essay came out a couple hours ago, um, and I, it's definitely worth a read for those of you who are already subscribers. Check your email if you do want to read it. Um, become a subscriber, and you can do that by going to wisdomofcrowds.live/slash/subscribe. As you guys know, and you know, I always feel like a little bit weird about like overhyping or kind of promoting the Friday essays too aggressively. That's just not my style. But I think we're doing some great stuff. I mean, I'm biased, but I think my uh, essay last Friday was really good. It was really good. <laughs> Did you but, get a lot of flack for that? Um, No, no, because I, I think people appreciated it. And yeah. I, I sent you the um, the one friend who texted me and she's like, okay, you got me. I'm subscribing. She couldn't resist, literally. yeah. yeah. She really had what? to read, and she she was, was she happy afterwards. She was very happy. She's like, "That was good. That was worth it. That was good." Because I think that you know Obama's memoir, "A Promised Land," everyone was being so deferential to it because it's Obama, and he's a great writer, supposedly. Even though some of the pro style I saw in there, I was like, "Goodness, how wow!" He is not. He, this is the good writer we're talking about. But I think people were people wanted a takedown and they haven't been able to get like a takedown from someone who's not a hardcore right winger. And if I can play that role and, and, and fill that gap in people's lives, so be it. But no, I, I, um, I don't know if my mom read it because as I mentioned in that, in that, in the piece at the start, my mom doesn't like it when I'm so aggressively critical of Obama. And she's like, Shaddy, like, stop, you're being too hard on him. He's been through a lot. Um, and he had a difficult eight years, and then afterwards he had to see how his legacy was going into ruin, all of that. Um, so my mom would probably not be a huge fan of how critical I was in the in the review essay. 
But um, anyway, for those of you who who want that and you've been logging for that, um, I that's another reason to subscribe to Wisdom of Crowds so you can get my long-awaited review of a promised land. Yeah, did you get pushback on Twitter? Like when you were when you were hawking it? Because I mean, you, you hawked it pretty aggressively as being very critical. Surprisingly, like, not. I, maybe just people expect that from me. Yeah, I mean, you've been you've been always critical of Obama, so I guess it's not like a real surprise uh, as such. But I wonder, you know, I mean, maybe it's also that Obama's uh, no longer quite the figurehead he was, you know? I mean, that uh, maybe just people are drunk on on Bidenism right now. And, you know, Biden is continuing a lot of Obama's foreign policy for sure. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just sort of time for a shift and he's not as But at least Biden doesn't have the moral preening that Obama displays in his memoir and Biden actually was not very much on the pro-human rights side of a debate, various debates that were going on in the White House during Obama's tenure. So, for example, he didn't want to um, push too hard against Mubarak in the early days of the Arab, Arab uprisings. He wasn't enthusiastic about the Libya intervention, so on and so forth. So in some ways, Biden doesn't wrestle. So what, what really bothered me about Obama is that, as, as I talk about in, in my Friday essay, is sometimes he sounds like me. Sometimes he sounds like, oh, yeah, Arab, atoc- Arab authoritarianism is a problem. And, you know, the moral... And he's kind of presenting himself as someone who's morally conflicted. And he uses he uses the word wrestling time and time again. He's always wrestling as with As do you, right? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Well, but the, the problem is... You know, so he would make maybe a good analyst, a good observer, a good journalist, someone who's viewing it from afar. But what's so frustrating is that he's always wrestling and he is the one person in the world who had the opportunity to wrestle less and do more. And that's what's so frustrating. Who, 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 hmm? who, what? <laughs> Okay. Well, anyway, I mean, to 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 just, I mean, let's let's no, take who it. But this is what I wanted to say. Who but the leader of the free, whatever it is, the world superpower, the free world, the most powerful man in the world. Who but him could actually make the very changes that he apparently was wrestling with before he became president or at the start of his presidency? But he never. All he would do was have lunch with Samantha Power, which I thought the way he uses Samantha Power as this kind of moralistic foil that when he's when he's um, conflicted about the morality of things, he called literally I'm not even, this is not me being hyperbolic. He even describes this as one of his moods when he feels conflicted about the human rights of Arabs. This is a, a mood he's in. And when he's in one of those moods, he calls Samantha power up and then he, he gets that from her, but then he ignores everything she tells him. It just, it's so, I don't know if he's just not self-aware enough to realize what he's actually putting onto the page or if that's just his style. That's the way he's always been. But there's just something infuriating about that. And maybe we can use this um, to get to, I mean, Rumsfeld, obviously, a hundred times worse or maybe 30 times worse. No, um, no, I mean, I do want to I do want to take yeah. it back to that, actually, because, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that that's um, always been interesting about uh, or I guess I've, it's never been clarified for me in our discussions <clears throat> I, I know that you you've said before that you know the Iraq War uh, pro- provided a kind of 
political awakening for you. You were against it and, uh, you know, you thought it was a terrible thing and galvanized you in, you know, sort of becoming more politically active and, and, and starting to write and all these sorts of things. Um, and yet, you know, I, I can't personally, uh, this is why I'm way more sympathetic to Obama than you is that I always read all of his stuff as basically a reaction to uh, to the stupidity of the Bush years. And, and somehow in, in your in your um, telling, I, I feel like you go from disapproving the Iraq war to actually being reasonably gung ho about the second inaugural, at least thematically. I don't know. Personally, if you shifted that way already and were appreciating the second inaugural of Bush and the freedom agenda that that followed the Iraq war. Um, And I don't know at which point uh, that, you know, that stuff becomes, I don't know, genuine to you as opposed to, you know, well, I don't know. I don't know. Just talk a little bit about that. My ideal foreign policy is, um, I guess... The Bush administration minus the Iraq War. Uh huh. And I don't consider the Iraq War to be part of the freedom agenda because that wasn't the primary justification for it. We did not go into Iraq for democracy promotion. It really bothers me when people retroactively get the fundamental facts about the Iraq War wrong. That we went for WMDs. There were a couple senior officials like Paul Wolfowitz who said that democracy was important to them, but others in the administration did not highlight that. Um, well, as a rationale, and certainly Donald Rumsfeld did not. Not not so, democracy, but he did he did he did want regime change. I think that's the yeah, interesting but regime thing. Regime change is a different that. Uh, I mean, and uh, let's let's talk about that because I think that's where the rubber. I don't believe in regime. I don't believe in regime change for for um, WMD reasons. But you believe in regime change for other reasons, and therefore nation building response- that follows from it. So, like if if you have. Well, I know you, what you think about Assad, that we should have toppled him and then, I don't know, rebuilt the society there somehow, I guess. No, uh, no come on, man. That's not my position. See? Th- no, I mean, come on. Just talk me through it. I mean, because this is, I think, where the rubber meets the road and a lot of this stuff uh, is is that, you know, uh, it, it, we've had this. This is one of the running themes of this podcast going for for years now. I think we can almost say years in plural is is uh, is is, you know. I get it. You have a, a, a red line about atrocities that need to be stopped. And if not us, then who? And, you know, a human rights mandate to do that or like a moral imperative to do that. Uh, but but then you always get somewhat reticent. And maybe your book, your upcoming book will help with this. But then you always get somehow somewhat reticent about the nation building part, um, which, you know, regime change implies. I, I don't think. believe I don't believe in doing nation building. Hmm. I believe in doing something in the in-between. Nation building suggests a long-term, drawn-out effort where we're culturally and socially engineering a new society. As you know, I'm very reticent about any kind of cultural and religious or social engineering in particular. I think we can do certain things on institutional design, for example, on um, electoral systems when a country is having its founding elections after the fall of the previous regime. And I think that we do know a lot about what electoral systems work better for polarized societies. I don't think we should do anything like Afghanistan involved a lot more than that, for example, and certainly a lot on um, women's rights, uh, which is great if you can do it. But I don't think that should be the goal of an intervention. And I don't think that we should have this idea that in religiously conservative societies, we can make we can make countries in our own image. 
that's where I start like some realists to get reticent and uncomfortable because it suggests an endless kind of effort where failure is almost inevitable. So I'm somewhere in between. I, I'm not like Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld thought that we could just get rid of a dictator and then just leave them to their own devices. He didn't want any kind of nation building where someone like Bush or Paul Wolfowitz were more amenable to longer term nation building. I'm somewhere in between, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I don't know. I mean, just to say, I mean, that to me was always, um, you know, that for it's the nation building thing that's the that's the what gets us into the stupid wars or at least the stupid occupations, the endless wars, the forever wars, if you want to call it. Um, and it's it's an inability to sort of think very instrumentally about war. And I think this is where you and I actually end up diverging on this, right, is that uh, you're you're much more open to an intervention which you assume can then be cut short or at least left to uh, a less sort of, I don't know, uh, invasive role yes, after the Libya. fact. Yeah. So Libya is an example of this. I think we could have done a lot more after Gaddafi's fall in terms of um, providing support to the to the new new government and um, civil, you know, stuff that is not necessarily ex incredibly expensive, but at least be somewhat involved. What happened is that Obama kind of wanted to wash his hands of Libya after he saw it going in his perception downhill. But even even with our fairly minimalist um, nation building posture after Gaddafi's fall, I still think that was better than the alternative, as longtime listeners will know, that knowing everything that I know now about Libya, I still think it was um, the right intervention be for, because it, um, it stopped a mass killing um, and some that could potentially been much worse if we had let Gaddafi march onto Benghazi. But also it allowed Libyans to have a future of their own making, which I do believe they will have now. And I'm not sure they would have had if Gaddafi had stayed in power. Now it's up to them what they do with that. And there has been an ongoing civil war. Now it looks somewhat more promising than it did one or two years ago. Um, but um, there's no doubt in my mind. And I, I find it a little bit mind boggling that so few people are willing to defend the NATO intervention against the Gaddafi regime. And they're like, oh, my God, this is how can we defend this? It's so terrible. Look at everything that happened. I don't want to go into all the details of why I disagree with that narrative. But even if someone like you, Demir, prefers as little nation building as possible and we do as little as possible after we get rid of the uh, the dictator, um, Libya would still be, I think, a positive model. I mean, what happens what happens when, uh, um, you know, foreign actors start uh, undermining the the negotiated peace or the imposed peace or the, you know. That's where I would have liked us, the U.S. to be more involved under Obama is in the, um, the diplomatic aspects of trying to bring uh, different factions together and strengthening um, the, the first government that emerged after, after Gaddafi's fall, which we didn't really do much of. And we said, if the Europeans want to do more of that and supporting the new government, they can. Obama lost interest, as I mentioned. When it comes to uh, proxies, come, you know, jumping in and filling the vacuum, like the UAE, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and others, the fact of the matter is that those are all our allies. Mm. Well, so Russia wasn't, right? I mean, well, Russia, yeah. So I think that... Um, the U.S. has to certainly keep its own allies 
uh, on the right side of a conflict and using the leverage that we have with countries like the UAE to say, look, UAE, you're one of our close allies ostensibly in the Middle East. Don't go in there undermining our work by supporting a would-be dictator, Khalifa Haftar. Um, and Inclu- Incidentally, our man from Langley back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And which is and, a fun little detail. But yeah, yeah, he was living in Virginia, yeah. all of this. And <laughs> Haftar was undermining the UN approved government so that there was an internationally recognized government and our own allies were undermining right, that in right. real time and we knew about it and we did very little to dissuade them because as is often the case we don't use our leverage with with our bad allies in the middle east even though these allies are very dependent on us for their very survival the uae saudi arabia egypt and so on but when the rubber hits the yeah Whatever that saying is. Anyway, yeah. But let's we, let's talk about Rumsfeld. Yeah. Well, okay. Tell me, I more, mean, tell me more about how you think all of this fits into the analysis of Rumsfeld. Let's let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Well, I don't know what it uh, says about the analysis of Rumsfeld. I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 a long time ago now. I think it's, that's one of the other interesting things going back to like read about this stuff is how uh, how far away Iraq feels, but still it was such a, you know, moment for me as well of just sort of, uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I've said before, I, I, you know, at the, at the start of it, um, I did have this idea that, you know, this could be done, uh, basically, you know, with, with overwhelming force. And then we just like screw off and get out. Um, and I remember my father telling me, like, don't be foolish. That's not how this is going to work out. I guarantee you. And my father had worked for years in uh, in Iraq uh, with UNDP. Um, and so he, I don't know, for whatever reasons, I don't know if it was experience on the ground or... or uh, is this Father Marushik? Very good. <laughs> wait, about, will I be meeting him in Croatia? You won't be meeting wait, him Wait, wait, we're not going to hang out with your parents? No, no, no. My parents are miles wait, away. Okay, d- wait a second. This I was not aware of. Wait, we're going to go all the way to your home country and not meet your parents? Correct. Wait, why, we can't just stop and say hello? It's out of the way. <laughs> okay. Um, now you've confused everyone. No, because, uh, you know, as some of our listeners might be aware, I'm, I'll be going to um, Croatia with Demir, Rachel Rizzo, Ani, and Benjamin Haddad. Um, in mid-July, I think we're doing a week, about a week, give or take, of a bit of a road trip throughout Demir's home country, exploring all Croatia has to offer, all the beauty. Yeah, we'll have to do, record a podcast from there. That's I be think exciting. we will, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how about, the, okay, uh, well, I guess um, some of you may know that the third person that you heard earlier is Matt Weinstead, our associate editor. Matt, you were a little bit younger when the Iraq war was happening, and I don't want to you know, peg, peg your time frame, and um, I, you might have been, you were politically conscious. I'm, wait, actually, I'm trying to remember. Wait, Iraq War was, oh my God, wow, 18, 18 years ago? Yeah, take Shit. that. Take that, old man. Do you remember? What, how old were you? Uh, I was born in 94, so Ooh. I was, what, nine? Oh my yeah. God. Take wait, that. That is, yeah, take okay, that. Okay, that is crazy yeah. because there is this whole generation where Iraq and 9-11 were not formative for correct, them. Correct, correct. So how d- so you learned about the Iraq war well after the invasion happened in 2003. So when you were studying it, say, in college or getting more into reading and writing for different publications, I guess you had to engage with some of these topics. 
Tell us, how did you start perceiving the Iraq war? Yeah, I mean, 9-11 was formative in that it was my first, one of my first memories. So I remember that happening. Um, I don't remember the invading Iraq or anything. My first memory of Iraq was in seventh grade. We had a soldier come to my middle school classroom and talk about it. And all I remember then was that, I think that must have been like 2006, 07. And everybody just spoke of Iraq as as the same way they spoke about Vietnam. This was in my like suburban North Virginia Public so 2006, people in your, as from what you recall, were already turning fully against the Iraq War. Yes, I mean it was so. 07, 08 was my seventh and eighth grade. I, we had like a middle school uh, mock election. I remember in 2008 that Obama won by like 80, 20 or some crazy margin. So yeah, the, and, and the teachers didn't talk about it, but like the students were aware of it. Everybody thought it was a disaster. Even the soldier came in and said like, "Yeah, we're making progress," but no, nobody thought it was. Uh, no one thought it was a good decision at that point. And like, we didn't know anything about Vietnam either, other than that it was a bad idea and that we were there for forever. Um, what was your political affiliation in middle school in 2006? I mean, um, obviously now I think you self-identify as right of center. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, then were you more of a lib? Definitely not. <laughs> oh, you were not. You weren't even a lib, despite the fact that the mock election, 80% of your fellow classmates were supporting this inspirational guy named Barack Obama. And you were able to resist. Well, there was a 20% there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it might have been more like 70, 30. But the uh, social pressure, I mean, there's probably a lot of pressure in that kind of environment to be on the right side of history, if you will. I mean, we didn't talk about it a whole lot. But I remember getting assigned the, uh, like, make a campaign video for one of the candidates. And I made a pro McCain video with uh, Beautiful Day by U2 playing in the background. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, we like we had Fox News on in my house every now and then. So when I did tune in, it'd be... I'd see Bill O'Reilly on at 8 p.m. or something. And I think that informed how I generally viewed this. I, but I wasn't out there talking about it. I wasn't until, I don't know if you know Melvin Leffler. He's a professor of um, like history and foreign affairs at UVA. And it wasn't until, until I had him that we actually studied the Iraq War. And What year would that have been in? Th- this was 2015, 2016. Okay. And he's, I mean, I think he's be defined as just an establishment Democrat or whatever, but he was actually working on a book. I don't think it's out yet, but a much more sympathetic look at the war where obviously didn't think it was a good idea, but was kind of pushing back on the whole, they just lied us into war type of deal. I mean, he was talking about how, you know, Condoleezza Rice and Paul Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld, I imagine no one thought that, Oh, let's lie to the American people and go in. It was, we have been shaken by nine 11 and we need to do whatever's possible to make sure this doesn't happen again. And we think, toppling Saddam will help protect us. Hmm. So, I mean, that made me much more, I'm not going to defend the Iraq war decision, but I also don't like the, uh, oh, it was, it was a, yeah, blood for oil. It was a fraud or that Twitter thread. One of you boosted the other day, making fun of it about the stress, like the Straussian reading of the whole thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, uh, but I guess, I guess, you know, so coming, coming up conservative. And so, you know, you're, you're faced with classmates who are, uh, roundly criticizing the war. You have your doubts. You watch Fox News at home. You you get some of that. You're you're more sympathetic. Uh, but now now you're in the world. You're on your own. You're 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 you know an independent thinker. How, how does it look to you now? Basically, looking back, how much does does you know your how much do your conservative priors still like make your back go up when people shit on it? Um, and how much uh, how much are you you know or how much do you like even downplay the the significance of it in general? I mean, I still harbor a lot of goodwill toward George Bush and the Bush family because I think they're good people generally. Mm. Um, 
So I'm, I'm a little bit defensive in that. I don't think I'd do much better than Jeb Bush did in 2015 when someone asked him the question, would you go back in again? And he was like kind of flailed around. I didn't know how to answer it. I mean, obviously, you, you probably don't want to go back in, but we also have no idea what the counterfactual would be. We don't know what a Middle East with Saddam still there would be doing. Just to say, though, the big strike against Jeb there was that he wasn't ready for that question. Right. That's why he deserved to lose, not because he answered it wrong. Well, yeah, and, like and because it took him like five debates to stand up to Trump on the debate stage, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. no, I mean, if, I mean, if we could go back now, obviously do not invade Iraq. But I'm still broadly sympathetic to the I'm more sympathetic to the Bush agenda in many in different ways than the Trump agenda. Sure, sure. The Bush agenda more broadly, but not that specific part of the Bush agenda. I mean, what, I, I get that you have a, some sympathies towards Bush, more broadly, compassionate conservatism, other aspects of his maybe domestic policy. But on the Iraq war specifically, why wouldn't you be more firmly against it? And kind of cordoning that off when we look at the Bush legacy saying, sort of as I did, the freedom agenda minus the Iraq war would be a pretty good Middle East policy in my view. Mm -hmm. Can you, are you willing to cordon it off to that same extent or, or you think that's a little bit too, too critical? I mean, knowing what we know now, I would not, I, yeah, ideally Bush never would have invaded Iraq. He would have handled Katrina better. A million different things could have gone differently. But I mean, the bigger thing is, if it was sold differently as a war of, look, we're going to be in there for a while and we're going to stay there for a while and we're going to rebuild it and it will all be worth it in the end. I still think that would have gone better than the kind of schizophrenic reaction between the Rumsfeld side and then was it the Powell side who Rumsfeld wanted the short war when a light army and the other side wanted much more yeah. troops. And the American people, this is my, at least my impression growing up and the impression I still get now when I talk to people was if it was sold as look, we stayed in Japan and Germany for decades and now they're our best friends. If it was sold as that type of war, I think it would have gone better than the, oh, we're going to go in and topple Saddam and then we can't find the WMDs and then why are we still there four years later? That I mean, that was always doomed to fail. I mean, just a counter to that, uh, and we can dig into that some more, but like the counter to that is that, that uh, Afghanistan was never sold as a false bill of goods. Nation building was tried for 20 years and now we're out. So we don't have we don't have the staying power. I'm not sure that you know you can sell that. I've heard that argument a lot, right? That that you know just invoke Japan and Germany and yeah. and, and Korea, and then it's like woohoo, you know the American people are on board. I think the the missing ingredients the Cold War there, like without, without also Japan and Germany were more important because correct. Well, know, Cold War is the importance though, right? Partly is 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 the whole well, struggle. Well, we also wanted to make sure that we didn't have. Um, a, a, repeat of Japanese or German nationalism, and we wanted them to be constructive actors in the international community, There was a, a that was a vital interest. I think it's understandable that we would do our best to put to help put Germany and Japan on a better path. I don't think you'd quite make the same argument that Iraq or Afghanistan were as central. You could argue that in 2002, though, I think, where they, you say, I mean, you think the global war on terror is going to take on the twilight struggle that the Cold War did. And it'd, it'd be much easier to say then, look, we're going to be on a 15-year mission to make these into stable, allied countries. Um, you can't do that now. And, may, and maybe it never would have worked, but we also didn't. I mean, Afghanistan, that was also, that's all. I mean, you guys are the foreign policy experts. I'm kind of a dilettante about this. But, I mean, Afghanistan, we've, we haven't yeah, we've no, never I had mean, the overwhelming I, I suppose, presence. Look, I, it's, like, it's like communism. It's never been tried in practice. And it's just like, you know, if we really put our backs into it, maybe it'll really work this time. Okay, um, well, more importantly for the conservatism yeah. part of it— um, I think one of the tragedies, if if someone is a conservative, is that Iraq and its legacy tainted 
what might have otherwise been a promising path for the Republican Party. If you wanted compassionate conservatism and this, you know, Bush did have some interesting ideas on domestic policy, uh, no child left behind, so on and so forth. A lot of that was um, that was undermined in the conservative mind because of the other failures, including the Iraq war. And that's one reason that Donald Trump was able to ascend by saying, look at these old Republicans who fucked everything up and then brought us into Iraq. And he was able to basically associate that with the whole Bush legacy, not just on foreign policy, but also more broadly. That to me, if I was a conservative, would be a tragedy for me. As a democracy promotion person, that that's also what I would argue, that Iraq war, unfortunately, undermined things that I hold dear. This idea that the U.S. should proactively promote democracy in the Middle East and have a strong commitment to a certain moral vision, which actually George W. Bush in his second inaugural and also in some other addresses articulated in a way that no other president has articulated in a, in a beautiful speech writing you know a lot of that was probably michael gerson um but still like there's a and there's something very sad to me there that that kind of rhetoric is now permanently tainted and permanent permanently or at least for the foreseeable future undermined by the blunders of the iraq war yeah and this is when it's tough sometimes to disentangle my own ideological leanings with my partisan ones because you know ideologically i think of myself as like a you know i like edmund burke the famous conservative who thought it's tough to change a society so how could i then think that u.s troops are going to suddenly reshape an entire society in afghanistan or iraq or somewhere it seems like it's totally contradictory um and then just the bush legacy in, in general like there's certain aspects of it where i'm probably more on the trumpian side quote unquote like i mean i like how bush was deep de-racially polarizing the party i think where it was doing better among like indian americans muslim americans hispanic americans black americans no he it was, just, but he wasn't though bush uh, in 2000 i think he won like in 2000 40, yes yeah. but not later oh yeah no i mean and iraq messed that up i think yeah yeah so i mean yeah pre-9-11 well, too and then the reaction to 9-11 i imagine also did right i mean it's just the sort of Okay, yeah. Trump has like out of out of Republican candidates. I I just like to remind people of this because it's kind of amusing and and de deliciously ironic. Is that I think from the polling that I've seen, although it hasn't been polled for that long, um, Trump is the American president. Sorry, the Amer. Sorry, Trump is the Republican candidate and or president who has been most successful with Muslims. Since Bush in 2000 or ever? <laughs> I don't know. What, yeah, what do you since mean? Bush in 2000, yes. So ever, well, I guess that doesn't give us a lot of yeah, sample size. It's like McCain and no, but, Romney. No, but you have yeah. McCain, Romney, and Bush second term. Yeah. Trump has been more successful than those three prior um, candidates. Yeah, no, he's, he's, I mean, and the funny thing too is that the, the only, the demographic that swung toward Biden the most was white men. So white men saved America from white nationalism, apparently, if you yeah. buy into those narratives. But the um, now I can't even remember how we got on this. But like the the Bush agenda more broadly was much was also much more privatizing Social Security, much more pro all all types of immigration. You don't like that, and I I mean I think Trump has actually gone in a better direction in the sense. And this wasn't necessarily I don't know how much he thought about this, but like he was the only Republican that did not want to cut entitlements. Was the one that spoke up most against immigration, and the whole um 
kind of grand new party coalescing agenda that Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam have put out back in 2006. Yeah. That was supposed to be what, what compassionate conservatism kind of was if people associate with Bush. But Bush was much more the kind of the Wall Street Journal editorial board type. That's a really interesting point, actually, that I don't think is recognized as much, that in some ways Trump was more of a compassionate conservative on domestic policy than Bush was. No, yeah. but we do. Ross certainly recognizes it. Raihan, yeah. to a certain extent, to their great chagrin, that, that the, okay, the but, first yeah. Republican to take the grand, the yeah. grand new party Okay, but Ross fully. wouldn't say it. Has Ross ever said explicitly? I think he totally wrung his hands early on about well, no, Trump. But, but what, what Ross he, yeah. said was that Trumpism was reformed, was a yeah, reformed conservatism's evil twin. Yeah. So. Okay, that's not exactly the best compliment. I mean, no, it's no, it's like like a no, but he was horrified because, like, in fact, Trump was Trump was 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 the ugly version of 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 their book. I mean, you yeah, know, which isn't good. Well, it, it's kind I mean, of good. He's he's he's. Grasping at he's uh, going in the right direction, and this is why. The, I mean, the irony of all ironies, in my opinion, is that the, the a lot of the Trumpist intellectuals who also liked this agenda, you know, support American families, reduce low skilled immigration to raise wages, less intervention abroad. They uh, they all hate Mitt Romney, but Mitt Romney is actually putting the policy bones on this type of agenda with the whole Child Allowance Act that he put out, and just Romney's always had much more hawkish anti-China instincts. Um, so I've always been more of a Romney guy than anyone, I hmm, guess. That's interesting. And now I feel validated because Romney's kind of backing away from the super Paul Ryan infused agenda of 2012 and going in this more compassionate, conservative, whatever you want to call it. But you think it also matters that someone or someone's family are good. So what you said about Bush and his family, they're good people, which I think is interesting because I think there's an open question to what extent being good or moral on an individual level leads you towards good policies, in, whether in international affairs or at home. And I would argue, and I have argued actually before, so this is not just me talking on the podcast, that um, in, in the broader sweep of history, Bush would have been the more destructive president over Donald Trump, primarily because of the Iraq War. The Iraq War's first, second, and third order effects are so much more far-reaching than anything Trump did on foreign policy, even though Trump on foreign policy was almost the opposite of George W. I like that George W. Bush believed that Arabs and Muslims could actually, uh, they desert, they, they, um, they had a right to live in democratic societies and they deserve to live in democratic societies. Trump doesn't believe any of that. He doesn't give a shit whether Arabs or Muslims live in any kind of society. But it, despite that, despite the fact that I'm so much more aligned with George W. Bush, on his basic aspirations for other cultures and peoples and religions, I ultimately think Bush was the more destructive president. Yeah, I mean, I think the better way to think of it is 2001 to 2008 were more destructive for America and the world than 2016 through 2020. Yes. But, that, but that's also a function of just what happened in those years, not necessarily in Bush's control. I mean, we don't know what Trump would have done if he was president in those eight years and how much better or, or worse he would have handled 9-11 or Katrina. Like, or well, the, or the again, but I mean, it's not it's not just like things happen, people react. Right. I mean, it's it, it is to a certain extent that that a certain vision with that shoddy bemoans and I actually am less worried about was, in fact, discredited on the merits, though, because it's not that 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 sorry, which just which which vision, Uh, you know, the very broadly put the confluence of uh, a certain kind of self-certainty about American supremacy that uh 
you know, that 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 was sort of wedded to, I think, a simplistic way of looking at the world about how regimes and societies work, um, you know, just coupled with with that kind of post-Cold War self-certainty about the possibility of improving the world. And I know this is ultimately, you know, you and I also argue about this, about the possibility of improving the world. I think that's one of the most disastrous uh, elements of sort of American approaches to the world and why I am sympathetic to Obama and why I've never been sympathetic to Sam Power. And so while I haven't read the memoir, I, I found that part of your essay most delicious when he would <laughs> call her up and just sort of like soothe, use her as a balm on his chapped soul. You know, I, I love that. That's that's freaking delicious. I was going to say earlier, the, the subset of our listeners who think uh, who think Shadi is a closet Republican just were loving that whole spiel about how much you hated the memoir because you sounded just like us. Wait, wait, you thought that sounded like a, a Republican? Repu- yeah, just totally. I mean, that's what that's what everything Republicans always found the most grating about Obama was the moral preening that seemed to accompany. But that's not inherently Obama. Republican or conservative, is it? You would never hear someone on MSNBC complain about Obama's moral preening. You would hear them talk about how a thrill went up their leg when they heard him give a stump speech. That's interesting. But is, but is that intrinsic? That's just partisan, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you said earlier about is it important for them to be good people? I don't, I mean, I've got no idea how like the Bushes or the Trumps treat wait staff or something, but I think it is important how they, the type of behavior, whether good or bad, they model toward other people. And I think the best example would be in like 2008, you had some Republican voter come up to McCain and say, how can you, how can anyone, it scares me. People are going to vote for Obama. He's a secret Muslim. And McCain had the famous thing where he said, no, ma'am, he's a good man. And yeah, yeah. Whether so, win or lose. Uh, Whereas Trump gets in front of a crowd of people and says, "Oh, there's some journalists out there. If anyone beats them up, I'll pay your legal bills or something." Yeah, and, and, McCain was like, "Yeah, no, no. Obama's not. Obama's not a Muslim. He's a good family man, <laughs> unlike those Muslims." <laughs> Remember, there was that other there was another great McCain moment where where uh, what was it? I, forgot I forget what happened. it was. That man, that one. Remember that when he was like he was saying something was like, and I, I think it had to do with taxes or something like that. It's like, and you know who voted for that? That one. And oh, really? To- I, did, I don't remember that. Okay. He, he referred to Obama as that one. That one. Forget about the inelegant <laughs> phrasing. The point is the no, no, intent. I, I, I'm um, just messing around. I yeah. take your point. Yeah. The yeah McCain, the, and as someone who was a McCain fan. Right. Um, McCain's your man. No, he's not. I wouldn't go that far. Why not? Okay. Now, why not? Okay, like, on, I know why McCain's not my man. I'm very clear on that. Like, domestic all, policy. All of, his, all of his instincts in Sarah foreign Palin. policy. All of his instincts on foreign policy are are like exactly, you know, of all the defeats in the last few years, more so than the defeat of Trump, I was glad that McCain lost. Okay, I, I think that McCain had a certain kind of moral clarity on foreign policy. Disastrous. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. I don't like his, I don't like what he did. I, I think one of his legacies, unfortunately, and I'm sure, and I, I'm almost certain that he regret he regretted this. I'm pretty sure he even like maybe made some allusions to it about Sarah Palin. Um, and you could tell he was never on board with his own decision that he almost immediately regretted. Like he, people convinced him, including, I don't know, Bill Crystal or something. I can't even. Steve Schmidt, the guy that's no, the Steve big Schmidt's Lincoln terrible. project. Yeah, oh he, my God, he, he's I, the Lincoln project. I'm pretty people. sure he was the one that pushed Palin on. Yeah, that's true. Steve McCain. Schmidt, but also Bill Crystal. Everyone anyway. fell in line on that. But yeah, go on. Everyone yeah. got to talk about like tingles up their legs. Anyway, like we don't have to, I feel like McCain, there was a, he, you know, in his spine, in his heart, in different body parts, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) he was a good man. And he, he actually cared, he, at some very fundamental, maybe non-nuanced, not very intellectual level, believed that 
democracy was good and that American power should be wielded in the service of the things that we believe. Yeah, I mean, I don't argue. I might, you know, he supported the Iraq war. So this is where I part ways with the neoconservatives is I'm much more suspicious about the use of hard power in a kind of uncritical way. I don't love, and this is where I probably overlap a little bit more with some of the Quincy people in a sort of weird way. I'm weird. I'm sort of like right in between the Quincy people and the neoconservatives. And the AEI I'm, people. I mean, that's that's <laughs> pretty, that's, that's like saying you're between like East and West. So you're between like, <laughs> well, yes, that is what I'm saying. I am between East and West I in mean, this regard. Why is that? I'm Wait. saying like, it's like, I, I find myself politically somewhere between the Nazis <laughs> and Stalin. Like, oh, I am so torn. <laughs> no, they're not that different to me. Yeah. Well, that is true. There's the horseshoe thing. That anyway, is interesting. Yes. Um, I'm just saying Quincy and, 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 and the neocons, it's, it's, they're, they're, they are, they're to not be horseshoe. fair, they are all Americans. I don't think it is comparable to Nazis and what, who? Stalin. Oh, Nazis and Stalin. Yeah. That's different. These are all Americans. I'm just saying they're pretty far apart. To, and you're, you're saying like you're squeezed tight between Quincy and the neocons. It's absurd. There's a big gap between Quincy yeah. and AEI. I, I, I'm yes, pretty sure all of us exist between Quincy and, and, <laughs> And, and the and, neoconservative shoddy. That's all I'm well, saying. Don't d- wax too poetic about you, it. You all are more involved in the foreign policy realm. Do you all still think the neocon is a useful label at all? Because I think, I mean, I it mattered so. in oh, 2000 to 2005, I, it, I guess. But. It could be. I think, unfortunately, it's become such a pejorative that it can't be used in a constructive way. I mean, I, I think that I have an understanding of neoconservatism, which is more nuanced. But once you bring up that word, people immediately have this idea, which I think is very incongruent with what it actually was in practice. Well, the problem is, is again, to just get back to Rumsfeld, is they, they lump Rumsfeld and Cheney Rumsfeld as Rumsfeld wasn't a neoconservative. It's not Thank neoconservative. You. Exactly. It's, like it's absurd. Yeah. He wasn't. He was just a hard nationalist. He was more of the John, John Bolton. Bolton school. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I saw Bolton was actually praising. He, he was one of the the, the positive uh, encomia for for uh, Rumsfeld. I didn't read it, but I saw yeah, but the I mean, Bolton wasn't a neocon either. He was just an no, incredibly hawkish. Not. Yeah, no, person. of course not. Being hawkish and loving U.S. hard power does not make you a neocon. See, the funny thing, the funny thing for me is that I'm actually, you know, uh, if if I have any sort of project, it's it's in fact to uh, have a non-stupid, uh, forward-leaning, I guess, conservative foreign policy that's not tied to uh, idealism, ultimately, but is still forward-leaning. And I think there is a constituency to that. What does forward-leaning mean in this context? In which context? In the broad context of what I'm talking about? So when you said you would want about? something, you know, for Republicans— to um to have something more forward leaning. Yeah, for example, one that uh is not constantly reflexively uh isolationist. Certainly not. So Quincy and that stuff I think is uh, Yeah, but Quincy's is, is not wrong... Republican or right wing. I mean, so. you know, I mean a lot of the people and a lot of the stuff that sort of ends up going through there, I mean, is is sort of approaching from this kind of like Cato right, you know, if you will. Okay, um, but the people in question are mostly progressives or self or like... Um, they have a few. One guy wrote Wertheim a book, is, like, a, like, like a conservative anthology all about like the 1800s, like romantic conservatives or something. Who was that? Was I, I, well, I'll put it... Basevich probably. Basevich so is, yeah. is like the honorary like president or whatever. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah. I mean, and like the Koch brothers funded 
in addition to Soros, I think, right? That's no, true. Soros yeah. barely so. funds it. I mean, it's mostly Coke money. And it's, it's, I mean, look, whatever. Let's not quibble you know, about we should, the, the. We right- should have Wertheim on the podcast. Yeah, sure. But the, the, <laughs> the, the thing about, about, um, uh, what I'm getting at is, is, is it's, it's kind of rescuing realism from, uh, what do they call it? From, um, what are the, the Quincy people call themselves? Uh, uh, Fucking restraint. Restraint. Yeah. Real, re- rescuing realism from restraint is basically what it, where I'm I don't believe from in restraint. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, this is where All you gas, and I end up. No yeah, I, I believe in. I believe in America unrestrained. <laughs> no, I, I know, but but what I'm getting at is though is just like I'd, I'd I'd like to strip the the if we strip the McCain out of you, Shadi, you and I'd be more or less on the same page. Okay, know? but that's like that's a huge stripping. Yeah, that's, that's why like we're a not big on the same difference. Page. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, before I forget, I want you to talk a little bit more about, because this is ostensibly an episode about Rumsfeld, but I feel like we haven't gotten to the heart of the man, and I want to make sure we have enough time to kind of tease out some of the points you make in your essay, which is titled The Hubris of Donald Rumsfeld, because there's something there which I think he shares with Barack Obama, which is a fundamental inability to self-criticize, a lack of self-awareness this conviction that he is right. And even it should be noted, there was a good um, biography of the neocons titled They Knew They Were Right by Jacob Halbrin, I believe. And there's something about that that reminds me of Barack Obama. He knew he was right. Do you want to untangle that for us? Um, I, you don't have to. I, no, I mean, I can. I, in the sense that, like, I, if, you, if you do watch, and I, I'd encourage both of you guys, but also all our listeners to... Just spend an hour and a half, uh, you know, when you hear this, um, download the the um, uh, the documentary, the Errol Morris documentary uh, on Rumsfeld. And uh, and really just I think you'll see how wrong that comparison is, Shadi, when you when you watch the documentary. Good. That's what I want to hear. Tell me more about why that's a bad comparison. I mean, it's 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 wild. There's at least. I mean, there's there's. Two moments, one which uh, towards the end, he literally confronts, he gets Rumsfeld to say something about some of the inquiries that happened on the, the, the torture stuff um, and to comment on some of the, the inquiries. And, and Rumsfeld basically says straight up, uh, they found no such thing. He, he opens the book in front of him and reads back was like, well, this is exactly what they said. And it's the exact opposite. And, and Rumsfeld says, well, yes, that's right. And literally doesn't blink and keeps going. I mean, he's caught in these wild contradictions and doesn't even blink and doesn't even feel. So he's a liar, basically. I mean, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Yeah, sure. Is that more Trumpian then? Is he similar to Trump in the unwillingness to acknowledge fault? Is, is that reasonable to say? It's wild. It's wild because you see with Trump, there's a kind of um, unrestrained kind of fantasy that he is living in, whereas it's different with, I mean, just watching this, it's, it's, it's different with Rumsfeld. It's, it's like, you also go back, there's plenty of footage in the documentary of Rumsfeld doing those pressers during, uh, during the Iraq war. Where he's basically really entertaining the press. I mean, he's he's really good at it, and he's he's uh, he's fun and engaging, and you know, teasing them, and you know, smacking them around, and they love it. Um, 
They love being teased. Kinda, I think so. Um, and and and, but it, it's 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 weird. It's it's it is different from Trump. It's uh, it's different on some sort of fundamental way, and I can't really put my finger on it except to say that Trump was not ever convinced of anything. He would just like talk, I think, and constantly believe what was coming out of his mouth somehow. Yeah, Trump- so that self-confidence existed that way. But with Rumsfeld, there's kind of a studied self-confidence to it, I think, which is really, I don't know, striking somehow. Yeah, so I think maybe Trump is a postmodernist and a Foucaultian in a way that Rumsfeld wasn't. Like Trump doesn't believe in the concept of truth. Right. So to say that he's lying is almost beside the point. I think that's right. He doesn't believe in a truth to lie about, where I guess if you talk to Donald— Okay, here's some of the poetry. I know I, this is actually important to share, and this is not a joke. This is actually from Donald Rumsfeld. There there was a book um, called um, the, the Existential Poetry of Donald Rumsfeld. Oh, so you did do more prep. No, I just p- pulled it up right now, literally. Um, okay, here is the here is the poem, "The Unknown," by Donald Rumsfeld. This is be- beautiful. He wrote this. Yeah, as we know, there are known un. Sorry, let me start again. This okay. is the memo, Shadi. No, no, hold <laughs> up, hold up, stop it, stop it, guys. Let me do this, okay? As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know. We know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know. We don't know. Beautiful. Okay, here's another one. So these are memos, right? That one was a memo. This one is titled um, (laughs) Class Box. Okay, ready? You know, it's the old glass box at at the gas station where you're using those little things trying to pick up the prize and you can't find it. It's, and it's all these arms are going down in there. And so you keep dropping it and picking it up again and moving it. But some of you are probably too young to remember those, those glass boxes, but, but they used to have them at all the gas stations when I was a kid. Here's one that's titled. <laughs> this is a good bit. <laughs> Wait, but what, what, what was that okay, glass box this one? one <laughs> this one is titled the, Di- the Digital Revolution. Oh my goodness gracious. What you can buy off the internet in terms of overhead photography. <laughs> is this a blog from Gawker that you're just reading off of? <laughs> I'm actually a trained ape can know an awful lot of what is going on in this world just by punching on his mouse. See, now that, <laughs> see that, that I bet that one sounds like him talking to the press. Yeah, that, you're right, actually. That is yes, actually that him is fr- belittling the press <laughs> for saying that they found some some evidence of something going bad in Iraq. And, and he was just like, there's a lot you can buy on the internet. Okay, here's the last one I'm, I'm going to do. This one is titled The Situation. Things will not be necessarily continuous. The fact that they are something other than perfectly continuous ought not to be characterized as a pause. There will be some things that people will see. There will be some things that be, <laughs> there will be some things that people won't see. 
and life goes on. <laughs> he, that is deep. Okay. He, okay, there's a brilliance here. No, 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 no. Okay, but to finish on that, I mean, because, you know, easy to mock, and I'm sure some witty New York douchebag journalist, like, <laughs> compiled these and put, like, line breaks in them and now feels clever. <laughs> and your dramatic reading really, really added to that, Shadi. But but the fact is, that's the thing, that's the thing that's most fascinating and sort of shocking and galling about Rumsfeld, is that he's clearly a very, very sharp guy who's nevertheless incredibly rigid on some of this stuff. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, the difference with Obama, and again, I, 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 uh, I think I disagree with you on this, is that, that uh, I do think Obama generally uh, did wrestle with this stuff. He was as sentimental as you. He just broke with me. That is, or broke with you and, and broke on my side. So he and, sounded and, like me, but he acted like you. Correct. I like that. That's actually my ideal president, is someone who, who, <laughs> talks, like who talks like shoddy, but acts like me. Um, so, you know, in many ways, yeah, I've, 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 I've never, I've never uh, shared your, your, uh, your contempt for Obama. I think Obama made some bad calls. But here's the um, problem. If strategically, but if not, there was a president who talked like me and acted like you, that would be very confusing to people because it would be two different ways of approach. So I get what you mean that um, you know we're friends, we have a podcast together, and you know maybe the best of both worlds. But actually, I think in some ways it wouldn't actually work out all that well to have a president like that because it would raise expectations only to kind of retreat to a much more modest, hard-power-acknowledging way of doing foreign policy. I feel like you have to choose. If anything, the opposite might be better, where they talk like the mirror and they act like you. Because if you do it, <laughs> that's the, a good point. If you do huh? it, the, if you do it the first way, you're going to have all these dissidents in other countries rise up, that's, yeah, thinking that the that's U.S. A, is going to support them. Then we don't, because Demir's in charge, and they get gunned down. That's the point I make where, in the hypocrisy essay. Exactly. Yeah. If yeah. we do it the opposite way, we don't give anyone expectations, but the few people that rise up anyway, we give them all the support that Shadi would offer. Yeah, they're and expecting then, nothing. Yeah. Because then, they've been listening to Demir like twenty four seven, and they're like, "Oh my god, wow." Wow, this is good stuff in practice. No, look, I'm I'm all for for destabilizing enemies by <laughs> by by giving arms to like unhappy peasants. But like, I do think there's one thing that's 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 very much overstated in a lot of this is this idea that that uh, you know, in fact, everyone hangs on our word and is 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 strategizing based on you know the. Uh, being in the good graces and the you know the support of uh, of America. Well, I to think be that's... fair, the Syrian rebels did expect an intervention at several key moments. I, I take your point that a lot of people abroad understand that American rhetoric is just that, but in specific cases, there was actually an expectation of American intervention. Oh, the expectation comes when you know you get yourself in a nasty civil war and you're losing, and then you start sort of you know uh, asking for it. And yeah, sure. At that point, you look to the president and hope for the best. I'll just say, you know, in the Balkans, uh, you know, everyone looked to Clinton for the longest time. Finally, in the very end, he sort of came around to it half-heartedly. Uh, but that's always been the, the, the proper lesson of all of that as well, is, is that, you know, uh, one shouldn't pay that much attention to it. And I remember talking to, to my friends who would try and raise the, the example of Bill Clinton as to you know, what America should live up to in Syria. That's horseshit. America basically was kicked, dragging and screaming into Bosnia. And 
and ultimately, it, and that's good that it was kicked, mm. dragging in. Okay, we don't have to get into yeah, Bosnia yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe this is a good point. Okay, I, I do want to make sure we have time for a bonus episode because Demir and I have a dinner yeah. that we have to go to soon, but we do have time for a bonus episode. So this is a way... We'll literally do it right after we close now. So if you guys want to listen to me, Demir, and Matt actually saying things we probably shouldn't say publicly, this is another reason for you to subscribe. And like we're doing some really cool stuff, and I don't want to get too excited about what we have in store for you guys. And this is not me trolling or whatever. We are actually giving a lot of thought as to how we can build wisdom of crowds and take it to the next level. Um, and this has been in motion for some time. I think you guys are going to like more of what we're doing. I mean, the Friday essays are a big part of that. I mean, that was, and we should actually give a lot of credit to Matt here. He's actually the one who proposed us doing a weekly Friday essay. And I have to say, being forced to write every other week about something has been really helpful. And actually, I would say at least three of my essays I've incorporated in an unexpected way into my book, which I should tell you guys. I don't know if I've told you, Demir. No. I submitted the first draft oh, of my shit. entire manuscript to wow. Oxford University Press on Monday. Congratulations, Sean. Thank you. And it was, wow, like the last few days I had to kind of just like put a lot of different things together and do some touching up, but I'm happy. Does but, Wisdom of Crowds and Demir and I possibly get a shout out in the acknowledgments? Oh, we, for, oh my God, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. We'll hold you to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And stay tuned for our bonus episode, which we will be about to record pretty much right now as we speak. Now.